two-month journey it has been going through the book of James we've learned the importance of action in our everyday life we should live what we know tap your neighbor and tell them you should live what you know genuine faith will always produce evidence of genuine faith I want to be genuine faith without works is come on you better shout it like you mean it faith without works is dead you see, we love seeing people come forward at altar calls. I love it. We love seeing people respond to the gospel. I love seeing people born again of water and of spirit. They get a brand new start. But that's not the end. Growth is imperative. And James is a practical book about growing, becoming disciples. And the main theme of the book is Christian maturity. And can I say this? Maturity is not about your age. I know a lot of people that are old. Dur. <laughs> you got to follow that up. You got to follow it up. But they're not very mature. I know. I know a lot, of, a lot of younger Christians that are probably more mature. Why? Because you can be a Christian for 50 years and still not be mature. And also, you don't get mature by comparing yourself to anyone else. Well, I want to be mature like they're mature. You become mature by taking the Word of God and comparing yourself to the Word of God. Look, the person you're comparing yourself to, they really may not be mature. It may just be an image. You ever thought somebody was spiritually mature and you went and hung out with them for a couple days and you realized that's, they not, they not what they say they are. You ain't, never, you ain't never been around nobody like that. It's just me. I'm sorry. But James gives us five marks of spiritual maturity. Five marks. And I'm going to give them to you real quick. A mature person is positive under pressure. That's number one. Just because you become a Christ follower doesn't mean everything's going to be great in your life all the time. Things will happen. Life will happen. But here's the question. When they happen, do I get negative, start grumbling and complaining and shut down? Because you can be full of Bible knowledge and still be grumpy while under pressure. A mature Jesus follower can be under pressure, though, and stressed out, but still have joy. They can be going through some things and still have a smile. So if I'm mature, that means I stay positive under pressure. I get a, I get a D on that one. Not an A, B, C. I get a D. I didn't fail, but I almost failed. Because I, pressure, man, just breaks me down, and I got to just gather myself again and pull myself together, put a smile on my face. Number two. A mature person is sensitive to people. Preacher, I just don't love people. I just don't like them. Well, you're not mature. Because mature people, mature, a mature follower is sensitive to people. When children are immature, they are completely self-focused. But mature people don't just see their needs. They see the needs of others. In Matthew 25, 31 through 46, Jesus tells us that the one thing we'll be judged for is how we treat others. We'll be judged by that. Not how many Bible verses we know. I know the whole Bible. Well, how do you treat people? 
Not by how often we attend church. I'm more faithful than anybody. Well, how do you treat people? Well, man, I, I operate in every gift of the Spirit. Well, how do you treat people? Because <laughs> there's going to be many say, man, I cast out devils and prophesied in your name. Depart from me. I knew you not. There's a lot of people who have giftings, but them giftings are without repentance. How do you treat people? Number three, a mature person has mastered their words or their communication. If you go to the doctor, what is he going to tell you? Stick out your tongue. And then they take an ice cream stick without ice cream. You ever wondered about that? Like, put me a little vanilla ice cream on there and then check and see if I'm all right. But they give you, they give you an ice cream stick without ice cream. And the doctor uses your tongue to check your health. God does the same thing spiritually. He says, stick out your tongue. Let me see how healthy you are. Who you been talking about? What you been talking about? James writes, if a person thinks that he is religious but can't control his tongue, he is fooling himself. That person's re religion is worthless. Gossip, spreading rumors, and constant negative talk is a sign you're immature in the faith. Number four. A mature person is a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. My Lord, help me, God. I don't know if I failed that one or not. I don't know. Preacher, you can't say that. You got the microphone. I'm being honest. Man, you start looking at these marks of, of a mature Christian, and you got to ask yourself, am I, am I doing good? Like, if I was to be graded today, how would I do? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? We all know Christians who make trouble more than they make peace. Don't look at nobody, please. Conflict isn't a Christian virtue. In fact, the opposite is true. It's a sign of immaturity. And James tells us selfishness and judgmentalism are the two biggest sources of conflict in our lives. And both prevent us from the Christ-like maturity Jesus wants us to pursue. Pride keeps us from admitting we're wrong. If you have a problem admitting you're wrong... Immaturity. You got, you got to reevaluate. Here's some revelation for you. There's no way you can spend time, real time in the presence of God and glean and not do self-inventory and walk out and realize there's some things that you've done to others. There's no way. There's no way you can walk in prayer and say, man, I should have handled that a complete different way. But pride keeps us from admitting that. Judgmental, judgmentalism puts us in the place of God. We judge everybody. This, this, this one, no, we can't do that, guys. Christian maturity means learning to say no to a selfish, judgmental attitude that regularly causes conflict. And the fifth mark, which we're going to get into tonight, is that a mature person is patient and prayerful. This is what we're getting into. Now, chapter 5, remember, James is addressing persecuted, suffering believers. So in the first part of James, of chapter 5, he addresses the rich. But you got to understand, you look at James and say, man, all the rich people going to hell. It's not what James is saying. You can't look at every rich person and say they're not going to make it. That's not what James is saying. Look, we just mad we poor. <laughs> Let's just be honest. But what, what James is saying is, he's saying that these, these people that he's writing about in that culture, they oppress the poor to get rich. They oppressed the poor by their practices and their, by the laws to do whatever they could to get money. James 5 and 1. 
Come now, you rich. Is there anybody rich? You've got to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James condemns them not for being wealthy, but for misusing their resources. Money is not evil. Write that down. Money is not evil. But the love of money is evil. It's all right to make money, but you can't fall in love with it. And unlike the believing rich in Timothy's congregation, these are the wicked wealthy who profess Christian faith and have associated themselves with the church, but whose real God is money and whose hearts were devoted to materialism. Materialism. You've got to write that word down. Materialism. Materialism. That's the sin that transcends time. Not money. It's materialism. Now, I, I don't want you to say this, though. Just because somebody takes care of their stuff and they're a little bit more clean and they like their stuff put together, that doesn't mean they're materialistic. Because if that's the case, I'm materialistic. I believe cleanliness is next to godliness. It's what I believe. That's not in the Bible. People say, that's the Bible. That's the, I, don't, I can't find it in the Bible, but I know, I know a preacher preached on it and I took it. Cleanliness is next to God. Don't tell my wife, oh, she's in here. Baby, it's in the Bible. I'm telling you right now. But you can't look at somebody that wants things in order and say they're materialistic. That's not true. They're good stewards. They take care of their stuff. They want to have their stuff nice and put together and, and, and clean. Materialism is defined as the preoccupation with material things rather than spiritual things. It's when the physical and financial take precedence over the spiritual and the eternal. And here's what we all got to learn, and I want you to say it with me, contentment. Contentment. We've got to learn to be content with what we have because materialism is the opposite of that. Contentment says, I'm good with what I got. Materialism says, I want more, 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 more. And we think the more we get, the more our dreams are going to be fulfilled. And, and, and once again, I'm telling off on myself in this pulpit today. I'm a stress buyer. I said it. I'm a confession. It's confession time at the river. I'm a stress buyer. If I get stressed out, you know what I want to go do? Buy something. Sets off natural endorphins. I feel better in the moment when I, I'm not thinking about anything else. Hey, I'm about to spend. It's not my money yet because I'm putting it on a credit card probably, but I'm about to go get 0% for 24 months. And you know what happens? The next morning I wake up with buyer's remorse. Three ibuprofen and a cup of coffee, and Jesus has got to get me through it. Because materialism never satisfied anyone. If it would have, Solomon would have been good. Solomon was the richest king this world has ever known. He had everything that anyone could ever want, yet he found it worthless. It did not produce happiness or satisfaction. He declared, whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth never has enough wealth. It's like chasing the wind. And in the end, Solomon came to the conclusion. He said, here's the answer. This is what I should have done. Should have stopped wanting everything. Should have stopped wanting more money. And I should have obeyed God, feared God, and kept the commandments of God. Solomon said, if I'd have done all of that, I would have been all right. That's what we should be doing. God, what does your word say? I want to fear you. I want to honor you. God, I want to do the right thing because my finances, where my treasure is, where's my, is where my heart is as well. James 5 and 2. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. 
Y'all, James, what is, James could not be my pastor. He said, all that stuff you buying is going to be moth-eaten. And this statement parallels that of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to start telling people, they got a nice suit on, going to be moth-eaten. <laughs> well, I like that suit, but it's going to be moth-eaten. Matthew 6, 19 through 20, it's what Jesus said on the mount. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doeth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doeth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. James points out the madness of collecting food, expensive clothing, or money, all of which is subject to decay, theft, fire, or other form of loss. You don't need another pair of shoes, Tiff. That's what he's saying. That's what James, that's what he's, I'm interpreting right now. Josh Payne's interpretation. How many of you ever went in your closet and said you don't have nothing to wear and your closet is slap full? How many of you had to build more storage in your closet to hold the shoes you got? Oh, y'all don't want to talk. Y'all getting plum offended. Come on, get that out of your heart right now. Let, let it go. Let it go. Look, at the end of the day, we can't take any of that with us. And I'm not against any of it. Now, I'm against overspending if you don't have the money to spend. If you don't have food in the pantry, your lights are about to get cut off and your water's about to get cut off and you out at Dillard's trying to find the latest sale, stop it right now. You got to pay your water bill. You got to pay your light bill. How are you going to see what those clothes look like and you ain't got no lights in your house? You're going to show up to church. It's going to be inside out. You Preacher, how you like, man, it's inside out. Well, they cut my lights out, but I got this for $9.99, 60% off. Man, James says that you can collect all you want, but you can't bring it with you. You can lose it. I know people, y'all, I know people that have lost everything in, in a fire. Their home burned down. They lost everything because everything that we have can be gone tomorrow. Everything. That truck I drive can be gone tomorrow. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. That's why you need to be blessed and thank God for your blessings. But if he takes your house tomorrow, you're still blessed. If you got to get another truck and it may not be as new, take it. I tell God all the time, I thank you, but my house is your house. When you don't want me to live in it no more, I'll move wherever you want me to move. Look, I was just as happy when me and Tiff got married, living in a home somebody gave me. They gave it. You know why they gave it to me? They didn't want it. And I didn't want it either at first. I'm telling you, we had roaches that were suicide bombers. They just jumped from everywhere. You'd be sleeping, fall right on your head. We had a squirrel the size of a groundhog that lived in our wall. Not joking. I was just as happy. Now, Tim wasn't happy. She ran home to her mama's one day and said, Mama, I'm not living there. I'm not going back. Her mom said, you married him, you get back over there. I'm sitting in the recliner saying, come on in, baby. Look at the palace I gave you. <laughs> but stuff can be here. If you find your identity in stuff, you'll be let down. James 5 and 3. Your gold and silver, I ain't got to worry about that one. I ain't got no gold and silver. Have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That's what it says. You'll, you'll, you'll be so consumed with the riches that it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The last days, James rebu rebukes people for living as if Jesus were not coming back. 
He said, you're living as if Jesus is not coming back. And greed is always destructive. And the stockpile treasure will be a witness against the rich. Look what all I stockpile. He's going to be like, man, did, how many souls did you win? Did you advance the kingdom? Did you give the missions? Did you help people when they were in need? That stockpile is just tangible evidence of a materialistic mindset, failure to be concerned with, with, with needs and the lack of trust in God. Remember the rich young ruler? Why did Jesus say the rich young ruler? What was the challenge to the rich young ruler? Go sell all that you have and follow me. He said, no, nah, I can't do that. And his stuff kept him from following Jesus. And Jesus used his encounter with the rich young ruler to warn his disciples about the dangers of wealth. And this is what he said. He said, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, squeezing a camel through the eye of a needle would be easier because the rich think they are self-sufficient and that their wealth makes them acceptable before God. I'm rich because look at all the blessings of God. I'm rich. Look, look how much God... Guys, I do believe God can bless people financially. And why he blesses more than others, I don't know. But if you're looking at somebody because of the money they got and you're saying they're blessed, I know people got big homes that are miserable right now. Come on, talk to me for a second. He said, man, it's hard. It's hard for people that's got money because they don't have to trust in God for anything. The disciples were shocked. And they looked at him and said, well, if the rich, if it's, hard, if it's that hard for them to be saved, who can be saved? You know what Jesus said? What is impossible with man is possible with God. And in, 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 in other words, what he's saying is anybody can be saved. All it takes is humility to say, God, I need you more than I need any money, any gold, any silver, any wardrobe, any vehicle, any home. Now, let me say it again, though. It's not wrong to be wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. Job was wealthy. However, this is the problem with wealth. Clutching a blessing can cost us eternity. Clutching it, both hands. I got it, I'm not letting it go. I got it, I'm not letting it go. I got it, I'm not letting it go. And God's like, no, you got to open your hand. If I bless you, it's not just for you, it's to help, it's to help advance my kingdom. Wealth may be a blessing, a gift from God, and it brings the opportunity to do good if we don't put it before God. And let me give you some more revelation. If God can't trust you with a little, why would he give you a lot? I want more. And God said, man, you don't pay your tithes, give in the offering, give to missions right now, and you want me to give you more? It's hard. Look. If I told Brother, you ain't going to come over, if I told Brother Hightower, look, I'm going to give you a $100 bill. I don't have one, but if I did, and you ran up here, and you come up here, and you said, give me that $100 bill, how, how, are you gonna, how am I going to put that in your hand? Because you're clutching the blessings of God. And there are some of us, we don't have joy, peace, more anointing in our life. Our marriage is in shambles. You know why? Because we're clutching everything we have like this. Instead of saying, God, it all belongs to you. Here I am. Whatever you want to get me, I want to have. Whatever you don't want me to have, I don't want to have, God. It all belongs to you. And you know what I love about this church in the kingdom? Is you can't favor the wealthy over the poor. It doesn't matter. If we're all given, we're all wealthy. That's all that matters. I don't, it don't matter how much money you make. All that matters, he says, if you give, I'll open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you. That may not be money either. That may be somebody you've been praying for. 
James then condemns the rich for how they treat others. James 5, 4 through 6. What verse we on? We on verse 6. It's 726. Behold, the wages of laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart, hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. God greatly condemns economic injustice in the workplace. If you're a foreman or you're a boss, don't ever take advantage of people. Hold them accountable. Make sure they do their job. But don't ever, hey, look, don't ever look at them and say they're weak, so I'm going to use them to get more money. God looks down on that. He says, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Then he says, condemned. And watch, he uses a strong word, murdered. This describes the next step in the sinful progression of the rich. Hoarding led to fraud, which led to self-indulgence. Finally, that overindulgence had consumed the rich to the point they would do anything to sustain their lifestyle. Have you, I've known people that got wealthy and they would do anything to continue in that lifestyle. Didn't matter who they hurt, who they destroyed, who they had to step on. They would do anything because they had so much. And they kept it. And then when it was almost gone, they would do anything they could. And James may not mean that these rich oppressors had actually murdered the poor. It may refer to their hatred of the poor toward those who are in some way different from them. And here's the question. Which do you have to watch out for in your life? Well, preacher, I'm not rich. That's not what I'm talking about. It's about your heart. Are you trying to acquire riches ruthlessly and unjustly? Are you hoarding money uselessly? Or are you spending your money self-indulgently? What needs to change in your view of wealth and how to handle it? In verse 7, James turns, it's, uh, turns our attention away from the rich oppressors to the oppressed. James 1 and 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the former waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and latter rains. The early rain falls in Israel during October and November, November soft, soft in the ground for planting. The latter rain fall in Mar- Mar- the latter rain falls in March and April immediately were happened immediately before the spring harvest. So he's he's telling them. James is telling us. He's using the analogy of a, a farmer. He's saying, be patient until the Lord comes to intervene on your circumstances. And the problem is that many people don't know how to exercise patience. We say, well, I'm being patient. I'm waiting on the Lord, but we're not doing what we know we need to do. Look, a farmer doesn't say, well, I've got to wait on these two, the former rain and the latter rain. He doesn't just sit back in his rocking chair on the porch and just rock back and forth and say, I've got to wait. I've got to wait on the rain. You know what he does? He goes out there and makes sure the ground's ready, makes sure the crops are going to grow, makes sure there's, there, there's nothing that's going to that's destroy. There's nothing getting in into the garden. The farmer doesn't just sit back and wait. No, he, he waits patiently by doing what he can do. And then he says, God, I'm going to trust you to do the rest. And there's a lot of people in the church saying, God, move on my behalf. But we know we're not doing what we know we need to do. You still got to pray every day even though you're waiting. 
You still got to get the Bible out and read it and go to church and be faithful and love on people while you're waiting. You can't say, well, I'm just going to wait on God to send the rain. No, you got to wait patiently for the former and the latter. He knows he's dependent. That former knows he's dependent on heaven to send rain, but he still does what he knows to do. James 1 and 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And what James is saying here, he's saying, look, go out and work. Wait on the former and the latter rain. He said, and when you get to the end of your rope and you feel like everything's falling apart, look up to heaven and remind yourself that the Lord is coming back soon. The first century church lived in constant expectation of the Lord's coming, and we should as well. They've been preaching the Lord's coming back for how long, Brother Ralph? Since the time of the apostles. And guess what? He hasn't come back yet. But we still should be preaching, get ready. The Lord is soon to come back because that expectation gets our mind off of what's going on in our world and says we're looking for something better to show up. I'm glad he's coming back. My hope is that there is a soon coming king. And that's the antidote to discouragement, to double-mindedness, and to, to the desire to take matters into one's own hand. When we've done all we can do, remind ourselves that one day Jesus Christ is going to show up and make everything right. And I don't want to miss it. I want to be ready. I want to be prepared. James 5 and 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. I love how he said that. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. And I'm going to add sisters. <laughs> so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Put the, You got that scripture up there, James 5 and 9? Are you back there? No, that's, that's 8. We passed that. We rolling. 5 and 9. Do not grumble against. Now, this is probably my favorite verse we're going to talk about tonight. Do you know why? Look at that last sentence. The judge is standing at the door. James pictured God as a judge about to open the doors to the courtroom and convene his court. You ever read that scripture, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord? James said, why are you fighting people? God's at the door. He's getting ready to convene court. If they're wrong, God will deal with it. Practice Matthew 18, go to them, get it right, but then realize, realize that God is the judge. He's going to take care of it. Knowing that the strain of life could lead to grumbling and grudges. Y'all, grudges is a real deal. People don't let go. I had a family member. I'm not going to say their name. They held more grudges than anybody I knew. And they were spirit-filled. But if you crossed them, if you crossed them, they would hold on to that. I pray that this person I'm talking about passed away didn't go to the grave without releasing those grudges because if you live in a life holding on to grudges they'll lock you up and make you miserable and you won't let anybody in your life or in your world because you think they're going to cross me they're going to get by and then when you how, how do I know preacher if I got a grudge when you see them how do they make you feel When you see them, how they make you feel. You at the grocery store, you got your buggy, you're going down aisle 11. You get you some rice, some oatmeal, and you look over and there they are. Can you smile and wave? Or do you look at them like if I had five minutes in a boxing ring? Oh boy, we, we, I feel offense. People getting offended again. We got to stop. This is James talking. 
James cautioned his readers against that sin. He called it sin. He said if you grumble and you hold grudges against other people and you don't let it go and you don't forgive and you don't move on, James said, listen, you will forfeit your reward that Christ is getting ready to give you. He said, you'll forfeit it. If you hold on to that, look, they was wrong. They shouldn't have done what they done. But I'm not going to drink the poison that they're trying to put in my life. Jesus Christ has more for me. You know what I'm going to do? So I'm going to go to prayer and I'm going to be like, God, they crossed me. And God, I know I want to give them these hands. I know, I know God today and tomorrow and twice on Sunday. I know I want to, God. But God, I can't because you're in the courtroom and you're about to convene court. And God, not only do I want you to prosecute them, there's some things that you're going to hold me accountable for that I did to others that I should have, shouldn't have done. Boy, it flips it, doesn't it? James 5, 10 through 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. That's what he says. He says, since patience is a much-needed virtue, the person who faces and endures trials is blessed. Can I go through a trial and come out on the other side and take a deep breath and say, man, I made it. And I made it out of that without any bitterness attached to me, without any hatred, without any animosity. Look, I know a lot of people that have made it out of things, but they, when they stepped out of it, they brought a lot of emotional baggage with them. And instead of enjoying the season that they're in after they come through it, now they're, they're, they're looking back and being like, man, they're trying to go back through it again because they want to they wanna try to deal with everything that they took out. Well, I'm emotionally scarred because of this and that. And then God, God is saying, but you made it. You persevered. Take a deep breath. Enjoy this season and know I'm for you. Mature. Be mature. It's a vital area of character de development. Long-suffering, I wish you could write this down. Long-suffering is evidence of the indwelling spirit. And James points to the Old Testament prophets as an example of suffering and patience. They endured unjust treatment for speaking in the Lord's name. What was the outcome? They were blessed. More specifically, James, James talks about Job. Y'all, I only read the book of Job if I have to. That's a true story. You know why? Because I got some superstitions in my life. You got super, oh, yeah, I believe if I read it, something bad going to happen to me. I do, but I'll try to skip it. I'll go to it. I preach a message called the fifth offering out of the book of Job, but that man had to go through some things. And he was minding his own business. And Satan showed up and said, hey, you just give me access to one person. Have you considered my servant Job? No. <laughs> if Job is, if he's listening to that conversation, like Job said, No. What about Johnny? He's three houses down. He's the one you want. <laughs> Put Johnny through it. No, no. Job had to go through it. Y'all, he lost everything. His livestock. He lost his health, his wealth, his children. But I love what, what Job prayed. He said, God, you give and you take away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. And James is saying, when you look at Job, realizes God gives and he takes away. But blessed be the name of uh, the Lord. Why did Job pray like that? Job prayed like that because he knew at the end of the day he wouldn't make, he wouldn't make it anywhere without God. 
And he said, I had to go through what I had to go through. But when I came out on the other side, I'm looking and saying, God is still merciful. God is still compassionate. I should have lost my mind, but I didn't. God, you give and take away. But your name is still to be blessed. You've got to ask yourself today before I get to verse 12, how do you respond to adversity? Do you quit? Do you give up? Do you grumble? Do you get mad? Do you get angry? I, or do you patiently wait? Don't pray for patience. Please don't pray. Ask Luke, Sunday at church. You don't know who Luke is? I'll introduce you to him. Luke prayed for patience. I said, Luke, you better stop right now. He showed up one day. He said, man, everything's falling apart in my life. I said, what are you doing different? He said, I'm praying for patience. I said, stop right now. Do not pray it. Pray for something else. Love, joy, peace. I said, you practice patience. You don't pray for patience. You get in the situation. You say, God, I don't know why I'm going through it, but I'm getting out of it. And when I get out of it, I'm going to be better than what I was before I went through it. And I'm going to grow because you're training me and you're testing me and you're maturing me. James talks about the rich and perseverance how we handle seasons of trial. Then he transitions to the virtue of integrity, James 5 and 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. So I, I, I looked at this and I was like, what does it mean? Because I always say I cross my heart and I promise to. How many times you said, I pinky promise? Me and my son do it all the time, but I pinky promise. Oh, I'm the only one? Y'all do it too? Oh, here it is. I'm going to get some of y'all, trust me. (laughs) And you look at them in the eyes and you're like, no way. Jose, am I about to trust you? I'm not. You're just looking at them like, there ain't no way. I see it in your eyes. But I realized that, that making oaths is not a bad thing. But you got to go back and understand why James wrote this. He wrote this because it was common for the Pharisees to rely on an abundance of oaths to try to establish credibility. They never intended on following up on those oaths. But they would say things like, I promise by heaven or by earth that I'm going to take care of this. But people would look at him and be like, we know you're lying. You're not going to do it. And what James is saying, he said, if you're a trustworthy person, your yes should be good enough and your no should be good enough. And you shouldn't have to tell people, pinky promise. Let's sign a blood contract right now. Your yes is yes and your no uh, is uh, no. And if my yes can't be yes and my no can't be no, then we have a reliability problem because our words matter. We must follow through or we will be held accountable. And if you struggle, if you struggle, if you struggle, if you struggle and I struggle with our yes being yes and our no being no, then we need to pray to God. God, help us to be people of integrity and help us to be people of our word. Next, James instructs the suffering and the sick. James 5.13. Is any among you suffering? Is any among you suffering? Let him what? Pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. They said James had camel knees. You know why? Because he had calluses where he prayed so much. And what James is saying is there's a simple answer. If you're suffering, pray. Pray. And then he says, 
Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. James said, pray because God is still our present help in time of trouble. God is still our refuge and strength. God still cares for us. We have not because we ask not. We got to pray. Henry Ford once took out a $1 million life insurance policy. Later, a close friend inquired of Henry Ford. He said, why did you not come to me for the policy? You know what Ford said? You never asked me to. The Lord is near to all who call on him. We have to pray. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That means me going to a place of prayer, then I get the benefits of God on my life. This house shall be called a house of prayer. The next part is those, put that scripture back up there, who are cheerful should sing psalms. This is why I need to be singing on Sunday. That's what scripture said. Those who are cheerful sings psalms. Psalms. That's what it says in the KJV. They sing praise in the ESV. They sing. You know what that's meaning? It don't mean literally going out to everybody and saying, hey, can I sing you a song? That's not what it's saying, guys. People are going to look at you like you're weird. And you're probably going to get kicked out of a lot of public places if you go around singing to everybody. You know what it's saying? Wherever you go, have a smile on your face like you singing a song to people. Proverbs 7 and and 22 a joyful heart is good medicine but a crushed spirit dries up the bones people need right now to see people who call themselves Christians having a smile on their face and going around saying hey God's going to do it he's got you he's going to be all right he's working on your behalf James 5 and 14 is anyone among you sick let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over them anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord now, keep that up there. Don't, don't transition. I don't want to see me on that screen. I want to see that verse right there. This is not just talking about physical sickness. It's talking about those who are beat down, wore out, and struggling. If you go look at that word in the Greek, that word right there, which is translated in the Greek, that word sick, it simply means somebody who is weak. They're tired. They're wore out. What does it say to do? Is anyone sick among you? Let who calls on the elders of the church? Oh, we're about to get some pastor in 101 right now. I'm about to help some people and I'm about to help myself right now. Is anyone sick among you? Let him. Who is him? So you telling me the pastor's not a mind reader? Pastor, I've been sick for three days. You ain't called me one time. I didn't know you were sick. Nobody's called to check on me, brother. The Scripture says if you're sick, call people and let them know you're sick so that they can come pray for you. That's what the Scripture says. I don't wake up in the morning and say, God, give me five people who are sick right now in Jesus' name. Drop their night. Oh, hey, brother, are you sick? No, man, I'm living the best time of my life. Well, man, I thought the Holy Spirit. No, if you're sick, call on somebody and tell them you're sick so that they can pray over you and anoint you with all. If you're discouraged, I've seen people come in the foyer of the church. I ain't been here in six months. There ain't nobody called to check on me. Well, you sick? Are you weak? Are you frail? Are you tired? Then the scripture says, call on the elders of the church and let us know. Boy, y'all done got me fired up. Let me take a deep breath. 
I mean, you know why this is so personal to me? Because every week, there are six or 700 people that need my attention, and they need me to get to them, and I'm doing my very best to get to everyone. And I've never missed when somebody called or texted me and said I'm sick. I never avoided them. I never didn't respond. I never left them on read, even though I don't have it on read. I never did that. But it's so frustrating to be doing all you can do and have people miss just to see if you'll chase them. When the scripture says, if you've got something you need in your life, just call, just text, just reach out, and we'll do everything in our power to get to where you are. Now, the scripture is talking about anointing oil, but it's also talking about the Holy Spirit because look at what it says. Let them call on the name of the Lord that's associated with the Holy Spirit. So, so let's say somebody comes and we run out of olive oil. It's all right. We'll pray over this smart water right here. God turned it into oil. Because when we call on the name of the Lord, the Holy Spirit gets stirred up, and that's all the oil we need to lay hands on the sick, and they will. James 5 and 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick. Now, notice this. We have prayed for people who are physically sick that God may have, he may have chose not that it was time to heal them or they went on to glory with their sickness. This is not just talking about physical sickness. It's talking about people that come in. If you come in weary and you need more oil in your life, I promise you, you're not going to leave here with less oil. You're going to leave here full. If you come in here limping, you're going to leave here walking out because there are people here that have enough holy anointing power on their life. They have enough Holy Spirit to lay hands on those that are struggling and pray the prayer of faith. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The prayer of faith for the sick will be saved. That's sozo, to make well, which leads to this if he has committed sins he will be forgiven can i tell you can't no man forgive your sins only god can no elder forgive your sins what that scripture is saying is that if they come to the front somebody with sincerity and the elders surround them and they're praying and they're saying god i need you and tears are running down their face the elders can look at them and say they have a repentant heart and god's getting ready to step in or move and move on their behalf the idea is that the church should have a practical ministry in place to aid members who are weak. And we do here. James 5 and 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, I want, to, I want you to focus on this. Some of you just got nervous. I got to go confess all my sins. Confess your trespasses. Do you know what that means? Go to God. And tell God, because the Bible says this, we are to confess our sins directly to God. But also what this scripture is saying, it's okay to have somebody you can be accountable to, like a pastor and a church member that you can trust, and you can go to them and say, hey, I'm struggling with addiction, can you pray for me? It's not saying that we're going to pass the mic around and say, everybody confess right now. How many of y'all would run out of here right now? I'm running, I'll be the first one. <laughs> it's not what it's saying. saying they should have people in your life that you can be accountable to that you can go to them and confess and they won't judge you for that they'll just say how can i help you and that also means this though if you do commit a sin that affects other people you do need to make it right with them that's another part of that confession 
It's not saying get in front of the church and tell everybody. But if you commit a sin that, that hurts somebody else, then you should let that person know, I am sorry for what I have done. We got that? All right. Where are we at? Where are we at? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The KJV says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You know what that is? Energetic, passionate prayers of godly people who have power to accomplish much. James 5, 17 through 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Verse 18. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now go back to 17. Let me, I want you to know this. How many knows Elijah was a powerful prophet? What James is telling us, they all knew. The original readers of James were well acquainted with Elijah. They had a lot of respect for that prophet of God. And James is telling them, Elijah did a lot of great things, but Elijah's just like me and you. He only did them because God was with him. And that we have the power, just like Elijah, to pray and God show up and act on our behalf. Elijah prayed persistently, and God worked a miracle. Elijah never gave up. He prayed. He expected. And then God closed up the heavens. In three and a half years, God opened up the heavens, and it rained on the earth. And James is saying that we have that type of power when we pray. Tap your neighbor and tell him your voice makes the difference. Musicians, you can come. Now, not some prayer you learned and copied. Don't be copying prayers. Well, if I can learn that prayer and copy that prayer, like the prayer of Jabez is powerful. But if you only learn and copy, pr copied prayers instead of going into the presence of God and declaring some things and using your voice and speaking some things, it's the fervency of our prayers. It's the constant faithfulness in prayer that wins the day and unleashes the power of God. It's Hannah saying, God, I don't have any kids Please give me a child. And she goes and she prays so hard that she gets the attention of God until eventually she has Samuel, which means heard of God. Prayer is when Simon Peter's locked up, the church is praying that he's in between two guards. But an angel shows up. And when he stands up, when the angel wakes him up, the chains fall off. And he walks out of that prison because there was a church that said, we believe in the power of effectual, fervent do y'all know prayer still pushes hell back? Prayer still opens up heaven. Prayer is still the key. It's the breath life of the church. If we don't have prayer, we don't have anything. And I'm not just talking about some, God help me. I'm talking about effectual, fervent prayer. I'm talking about go to battle. And then when you run out of words, tell the Holy Spirit to start uttering for you. That way you can stir up the power of God and anoint your shield. James 5, 19 through 20. My brothers, if any among you wonders from the truth, I love this, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Do you know what that scripture is for? Go back to verse 19. Do you know what this is for? It is talking about a backslider. It says if somebody backslides and they walk away and they start regressing and you see him slipping, but you go and you get them and you love them and you care for them and you tell them, hey, I got you. I'm going to be here for you. And if you bring them back, that's what it's for. It's saying that the church should be acceptable 
of people that have backslid, but now they're ready to get back. It's not, it's not focusing on the, the backslider. It's focusing on the heart of the church. How are we going to receive and help people? Look, if your child darted into the street in front of a car, what would you do? Oh, it's none of my business. No, you're going to run out there and get your child. And when we see people backsliding, it's not only the preacher's business to help them and get them back in. The church body's got to say they're slipping. Let me run over there and get them and help them out. Many believers fail to comprehend that it's their responsibility to help people. And anyone who brings somebody to restoration will cover a multitude of sins. And I'll close with this. Maturity is not an age. It's a decision to take the Word of God and apply it to our lives and grow daily. That's it. I'm not perfect, guys. I'm trying to do my best to be everything God has me to be. But I can promise you this. Every day I open this book and I find me a place to kneel. And I say, God, help me to align with this Word. God, I don't want to handle that situation like I did two years ago. I should be more mature than that. I should be able to handle it a little bit differently. I should have a little bit more perseverance and patience and gentleness and kindness and love. God, help me. Help me. One of the darkest seasons of my ministry was when I didn't even have a ministry yet. Some of you don't know this preacher. But I was short-tempered. When I say short-tempered, I'm talking about somebody cut me off in the McDonald's drive-thru. And I was probably mad about them getting ahead of me in my Big Mac. I was trying to get in my fries. That I'd get out of my truck and knock on their window. And I remember, I remember laying on the floor and weeping. Saying, that's not of God. It's not of God. My earthly father may have passed that down to me, but that's not what the way my heavenly father wants me to be. And I remember begging. I said, God, give me meekness. God, give me gentleness. God, give me kindness. And y'all, I'm telling y'all, it liked to kill me the first five years of pastoring because I didn't want to deal with any drama because I didn't know. I just didn't know. And then I learned, well, I can embrace conflict, but I can do it like the word of God tells me to do it. And the same thing is true with some of us in this building. There are some things we know we got to grow in. There's some areas, but we're scared to pray and break out the Word of God because we know there's going to be some things we got to let go. But if we can be honest, we don't want to let them go. So maturity is not an age. It's just simply saying, God, I got some areas that I got to work on, and I need your Word to help me work on those areas. And there are many people today that say they are spiritual. I'm spiritual. But they're not spiritually mature. Because spiritual maturity is a process. So don't fall victim to the trap of thinking that the people who know the most scripture are the most mature. Instead, look at how God is changing their character. And I want you to ask yourself this question as I close. How do you handle personal problems? We're maturing. I'm going to ask you another question. Are you sensitive to the needs of other people? Are you? Do you have control of your mouth? 
Or do you just say anything that comes to your mind? Preacher, I don't have much of a filter. I just say what I'm thinking. Don't, don't say it no more. It's not of the Bible. We need more brash people in the world. Yeah, that's why the Bible says to be harmless as a serpent and wise as a dove. I'm sorry. Wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. Ask yourself this, am I a troublemaker or a peacemaker? Then the last question that I'll ask you as I get ready to pray. Do I pray without giving up? Or do I give up easy? Spiritual growth is a process. It's not an absolute. And faith without works is dead. But faith with works is dynamic. In the Alps somewhere on one of the mountain peaks... There's a monument to a guy, monument to a God, guide, I'm sorry, who died while trying to rescue somebody who was up there. He failed in the attempt, passed away and was buried. His monument is up, up there in the Alps, and his name is written on the front of the tombstone with the simple epitaph, he died climbing. That's it. It says he died climbing. And I, I don't want to die climbing no mountain by no means. But when it's time for me to go, I want people to say he was still climbing. He was still maturing. He was still growing. He was still trying to be better. He was still trying to, to put the Word of God to work. He wasn't stagnant or stale. He didn't get bitter or angry. Look, when I retire at 50, I don't want to retire mad. That's my goal. This position can make you callous. But I told God, I'm not going to get callous. Because every day I've got to climb in His presence. And I've got to make a climb. And I've got to take another step up. And I've got to be better today. i got to be better today. I gotta, I'm never going to arrive. i got to be better today. And if you'll keep climbing, there's no telling where God will take you.